Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're continuing our coverage of Wolfe's first novel, Operation Ares, with a discussion of our previously recapped chapters five and six. Glenn, should we get started? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this discussion today, Brandon. Well, what I want to talk about for these chapters, Brandon, is religion. And of course, in our last episode, and as you even called back in this episode, you had this insightful and rather prescient comment about there not being any religion in this novel. And and of course, this is unusual for Wolf, and that in itself is worth talking about. But now, in these two chapters, we get some religion. And so I think it would be worth our time to, to really zoom in and, and do a careful examination of the religion in these chapters. I think that's a fantastic idea. The obvious thing here, right, is the hunters as a religion. But before we examine them, I want to take stock of the other religious elements that we see so far. And I'll just run down these a, a little bit. So in these chapters, we've seen that churches are now taxed by the pro-tem government, which suggests a, a hostile attitude towards religion, both institutionally and and perhaps socially. Uh this seems like a charge that a pious person such as Wolf would level at socialist and communist. It came up in the recount already. Uh, we also have our protagonist's initials of JC being you know, the same as Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that we can really evaluate what that means until we've finished the book. Uh, this is something I think we'll probably want to discuss with Mark Aramini when he joins us uh, to wrap up the novel. Yeah, I find it sometimes confounding to try to associate John Castle in any way with with Jesus Christ. There's very few similarities as far as I can tell so far. And so I really do hope that we get to see John Castle kind of um, be redeemed in the Catholic sense in this story and become perhaps a savior type figure. And one thing I've been thinking a lot about as we uh, – are working on this story, and as I've been reading some of the great comments in our forum, is that um, I think a lot of readers look for Wolf's heroes to be saviors in the mold of Jesus Christ. And that is true a lot of the time in terms of their capacity to rescue the world from something. But at the same time, they are more human than God. And I think in that way, they fall more into the hero mold. And I think that this is Wolf's perhaps experiment with writing a hero who I hope we'll see becomes a savior figure of some type, but is really more of a archetypal hero. Yeah, I think that's a pretty shrewd observation. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how John Castle's arc completes in this story and, and, and seeing to what extent his story parallels Christ's story, to what extent he is some sort of savior figure. And as you say, this is something we will see again and again in Wolf's novels and also his short stories. And so I think this is going to be a real uh, important piece of evidence, an important bit of material for us to have sort of in our toolbox as we seek to unpack some of the more complex and more famous of Wolf's stories. So there's one more religious element I want to bring up here before we get into the hunters, and that's the allusions to the Noah story that we had in chapter one. 
we had the space mutant with the same name as one of Noah's sons. And then we also had these this arc for African animals as their ecology was collapsing. And I really thought that there was going to be much more to this in the story than there has turned out to be uh, so far, at least. Right. Even Japheth's characterization as a wakey has basically been retconned out of the story so far. Uh, I'll be really interested to see if that has any real role to play. But Japheth, who is at first described as as being disabled in some form, is an active member in these militias. And at least as someone who's perhaps through his disability or uh, super ability <laughs> um, been outcast from society, is welcomed into these organizations. And I'm just... Uh, it's something uh, of a craft question to introduce a character with a certain notable feature that then plays absolutely no role in their function in the story. I mean, Japheth is really fifth business in this story. And wh- other than the fact that we're told that there might be mutants in this world, his role is just to like bring news to people. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing how his arc completes as well and not just him but other wakeys we do get mention we do get references to other wakeys actually in these chapters but you're right that they that the centrality of that as a feature of the world has really diminished uh, and i am curious to see if we'll if we'll get any more about that if it were will if it will really feature with the resolution of the story at all but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, though we will, we will very shortly be wrapping up this novel. But I think it is time now for us to take stock of the hunters. And and I want to divide our discussion of the hunters into two parts, really kind of the, the two components of religion, which is to say belief and practice. You've already had some really good things to say about, about the ritual, about the, the practice element of this. But I think I want to start with the belief and then get into the practice. And there's a lot to unpack about the hunter's beliefs, or at least Tia Marie's beliefs. Uh, most of this comes from that discursive passage on page 95, uh, if you're reading along. Uh, and so I think I'll just start by by taking those things in turn. Now, we start with the statement, and you recapped this, Brandon, uh, that the entire structure called civilization is an illusion cast by man upon mankind. In Tia Marie's belief, people are savages, and they never have been and never can be anything else. All right, and after that, we get Castle's characterization that on this simple concept, Tia Marie grafted a whole structure of witch doctor craft and shamanism. Uh, these terms, witch doctor and shaman, have precise technical meanings, but I don't think that that's how Castle or Wolf is using them here. Rather, I think these are shorthand terms meant to suggest that the hunters believe that Tia Marie has some special supernatural power or or insight, and that the beliefs of the hunters are shaped by Tia Marie herself and not by some official scripture with canonical interpretations. I think that's right. I think that's explicit in the text. Tia Marie is the leader of this cult, and it is a cult both in its ritualized practices, but also in in the sense of it being a personality call, as we suggested, perhaps Wolf believes China to have fallen under the spell of such a thing at this point. So I think like all good ritualized cults, Tia Marie is 
explaining something that's difficult for her practitioners to articulate about their world. Namely, that is, they are told that the world is one way and they experience it a very different way. And this is the paradox uh, that I uh, brought up earlier that is crucial to every successful ideology. There's always one because there's there's always a paradox in every explanation of the world because the world <laughs> is not uniform or binary. It's very complicated. And I think what Tia Marie speaks to here, at least in terms of her metaphor that she's making literal, is that these people do experience a savage world that they're told is civilized. And her explanation is something that helps these people find solace in their daily practices that they engage in throughout the world. And those practices then are ritualized in these study groups that Tia Marie runs. Well, and this is really interesting here as almost a, a kind of speculative anthropology of what what would a new religion that grows up in a communist dystopia look like uh, in a in a in a dystopia where the institutions of civilization have failed, but the artifacts are still present. And so I think this attitude that all of that was always an illusion, but we ourselves, the nature of humans, has been consistent through time. And the fact that civilization is collapsing around us is not bad. In fact, it's a return to our pristine condition, to the way we're meant to live. Yeah, that's exactly right. That is what she is selling here. And somehow this return is bolstered by artificial means and also somehow in support of this return to the constitutional U.S. It's really interesting. It's like if we go back far enough, just far enough, we, we, we can dispense with this religion. But if we go back all the way, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. I think it's really cleverly done here. I'm not sure we're going to get too much more of it or that Wolf is really going to make this a central component of the story. But the way he's handling this here in his first novel speaks to how he's going to handle this at much greater depth and with even better skill, even greater skill in the in the future. You're right. The structure of this novel so far gives me no hope that we'll meet the hunters again because... The, the amount that changes from chapter to chapter is absolutely insane. And we're now nearly halfway through this novel, and we've just introduced four or five new elements to this story that are picked up. And we still have things from the beginning that have been picked up that haven't been fully dropped yet. So I'll tell you what, Glenn, I'm absolutely lost into where this story is going to end up. Knowing Wolf, I think uh, I've made predictions, but I. I love what Wolf is doing here with Tia Marie, and I hope the hunters become kind of a core feature of the back half of this novel. Yeah, same here. Well, I think I think on that note, we can come to what I think of anyway of the, as, as the really exciting part of this discursive description here of their beliefs. And this is when we learn that Tia Marie has lent John Castle a number of books that are about about the beliefs of her religious group or, or cult, actually, is, is what John Castle thinks here in this passage. So we get a description of what these books are about, 
And I think it will just be a lot of fun to go through this list and try to understand it. Uh, And in particular, I have a lot of questions about the last two. Um, And we talked already a little bit in the recap about the seven works, but let's just take them in order. First, John says that some of the books are about astrology. I think Astrology is probably pretty straightforward for, for us and for our listeners. It's, it's reading the position of stars and planets as a type of insightful or prophetic language. Right. And we get the payoff of this immediately when John tells President Huggins that the meeting had to start right away because it was tied to the placement of the stars. And I think perhaps that is as deep as we'll get into astrology, though Maybe there's more. I expect that's going to be it. The, the second item on this list is animism. And this is a, an anthropological term. It's a technical term that anthropologists use. And I, I think that that is how it's being employed here. It refers to any number of belief systems in which souls or a, a sort of spiritual nature are not limited to humans, but extend to animals, to, to plants, natural features and phenomena, and, and even to material objects. The, the term animism derives from the Latin word for soul, which is anima. And in animist belief systems, the, the boundary between the spiritual and the material is either non-existent or blurry. And I think we can add here Tia Marie's insistence that shadows are as real as substance. And as you pointed out, Brandon, we have seen this elsewhere in Wolf, though here it is characterized with disgust or, or met by our protagonist with disgust, which I think is not something we've seen before. That's right. And I think this is largely because Gene Wolfe was not able to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer before he wrote this book. Sadly. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just zoom right along into our third one here, which is spiritualism. And and this is one of the items on the list that gave me pause, uh, mostly because this can have uh, a number of different meanings, or maybe two different meanings that will matter to us. The first use of the word spiritualism here is, uh, refers to a belief system that emerged in upstate New York as part of the Second Great Awakening around 1840. And this type of spiritualism uh, centers around the notion that when people die, their spirits go to another realm to live, and, and they also develop capacities beyond those of us poor embodied humans. By means of a psychic medium, people can contact these spirits and seek advice from them. I think this is a pretty big part of pop culture. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle is a famous spiritualist. Harry Houdini was a famous skeptic. Uh, he made a huge deal out of showing that psychic mediums were were frauds. Uh, and I think if you've you know watched anything like like Penny Dreadful or any other kind of nineteenth uh, century fan fiction, more or less, uh, you know, steampunk novels, etc., right. you've encountered this type of spiritualism. Yeah, before. this is also tied closely to like mesmerism and the the idea of hypnosis and things like that. Eric Mesmer. I believe his name was developed this theory of hypnosis that tied very deeply into spiritualism and they're they're part and parcel of the same time it's a major feature of a lot of great uh, early 20th century novels like uh, Thomas Mann's the Magic Mountain which is about the history of like the 19th century and the and the events leading up to World War one and it's 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 hard for us to imagine how much of a fad this was. This was huge in Europe in particular and took took the European continent by storm. 
in people's practices and beliefs. It became a parlor game for a lot of people. You mentioned it was also tied to the Second Great Awakening, and this this is connected to um, John Darby, I believe, who was a theologian of that time, who was very much interested in the condition of the soul after death. There, there's a lot of weird stuff going on with Darby. I don't want to get into it in this podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a big part of it. And, and, and America is rightfully well known for the amount of, for the number of religious movements that have come out of this country, particularly out of upstate New York. So um, it's just, it's just really interesting. Uh, Spiritualism is a fascinating topic. Yeah, and you're you're referring there, Brandon, to, to to Mormonism, which comes out of upstate New York at exactly the same time, and and also all of this actually the the, the Second Great Awakening and these these new new religions really and are also tied to the abolitionist movement as well. This was a really important moment in American cultural history. Yeah, and for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, I can encourage you more to learn about this period of American history that's often ignored in, I don't know, popular retellings of America. And as you say, this really was wildly popular among the intellectual and political elite in in Europe. And, you know, I just mentioned Arthur Conan Doyle, but uh, other people were really interested in this as well. People like Charles Dickens, for example. And so I do think that Wolf might have this meaning of spiritualism in mind here. But there is another meaning of the term spiritualism. And, and, and this is an organized system of belief that adds elements of animism to Protestant Christianity and also incorporates elements elements of this this first type of spiritualism we've just been talking about. Uh, this still exists in the UK as an official church. To a much lesser extent in the US, we don't have uh, a spiritualist community in Philadelphia, but there's a big one in New York still, uh, and in some other cities around America. So what I want to know right now, Brandon, is, is which of these two you think Wolf might have in mind here? So in this text, John says to the president as he is giving Charles Huggins this hunter rhetoric that uh, once something exists, it never ceases to exist. That's spiritualism. That's animus. That is really uh, panentheism, I believe the term is, where uh, souls exist in everything. Like, it's, it's, it's the Jedi. It's the Force, right? This is <laughs> this term. I think that's what's going on here. We see in the ritual that the souls of the trees and the animals that were native to the continent of North America, even though John has to jump through some hoops to convince the president that hyenas were native to North America, (laughs) is part of this animus religion, but also as it plays into spiritualism. I think why Wolf mentions the animus isn't because people are pretending that they are uh, sharing souls with animals or they're, they're able to share souls with the world. It's to guide us into this other definition of spiritualism that you mentioned. Yeah, so this is going to lead into the fourth item on the list, which is these seven works. And we'll get back to what your reading of it in the recap was in just a minute. But I want to point out that this spiritualist church in the UK has a list of seven principles that uh, it is that it is guided by, and so I took those two terms together in the clause uh, in this sentence where they're they're paired together without a comma. They are bound together by the clause. You're absolutely right. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I looked up 
the seven works and saw a lot of great religious paintings, but I did not tie them together in uh, Google's Boolean logic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so I will say, so I found that very interesting. My mind kind of went there when I was just trying to parse the grammar of it. You know, these I, I, these, these principles that they have, you know, the first principle is that there's a, a God, a creator God, God the Father, right? This is the Judeo-Christian God, though they have no mention of Christ in their, their principles, but they also then have you know, these, these spiritualist principles about the eternalness of souls. There's also a principle dedicated to um, explaining the how angels function in their religion as well. I do think what he's doing in that passage, because he also ties astrology and animism together, also without a comma. I think this is merely a literary technique where he's he's using alliteration uh, as, as a sort of, as really, it's, it's a poetic tool here to make a beautiful passage and it is a beautiful passage i do actually want to to say that and we'll get into this in a minute that i think that your reading is probably right and that we should take each of these four categories as a separate category and not as two pairs yeah it doesn't really make sense for me to combine astrology with animism that's not something i would do i mean unless you're like a real deep ancient who's like the the planets are wandering souls and you know the the we do get you know reference to constellations here as being meaningful but like you know perhaps in this other version of animism these constellations really represent real people and their souls are 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 being represented by these stars and blah 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 perhaps but i think you're also right that that alliteration is what is being gone for here <laughs> yeah yeah definitely and but with all of that said i do think that this phrase seven works here is extraordinarily important for our understanding of how religion is being dealt with in this world and its significance so i think that i think we should talk now about the seven works as they feature in in Catholicism primarily, though though some other Christian sects as well. And these are the the, the seven works of mercy. And and you brought up already, Brandon, that there are two lists of works of mercy. There's the corporal and the spiritual, the bodily and the the spiritual. And this in itself, I think, relates to the dichotomy that we've already seen in both animism and spiritualism. This sense that there is substance and shadow. There's matter and spirit. This is even inherent in the way that Catholicism views mercy. And I found that I find that very interesting. I don't think I had really thought about it in those terms before until unpacking this passage in Wolf. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what really struck me about this passage about the hunters, about Tia Marie's familiarity with the seven works of mercy, the seven works of mercy, is that her actions dem- are demonstrative of at least the corporal works of mercy, and her speech is uh, kind of indicative of the spiritual works of mercy. The things she's concerned about John are not really his broken arm, though she tends to it. It's about his learning the right mind to have to live in the world and so uh which is like teaching the souls is one of the seven works of mercy for this spiritual and so that really struck me as i think wolf in this brief brief discursive passage with tia marie and the description he gives about john's 
body and how well he's doing compared to him falling off of at least an eight-story <laughs> building is meant to demonstrate, I think, the seven works of mercy uh, more than perhaps the, the spiritualist religion, you know, seven uh, rules or whatever, whatever they're called. I agree. And we have seen already Wolf invoke the corporal works of mercy in his story, how the whip came back. And I want to point out that it's not just mentioned in that story, but that that story, how the whip came back, has a lot of parallels with Operation Ares in that it posits a world in which the Soviet Union is doing better than the United States. But in particular there, the, the crux of how the whip came back is that the seven works of mercy, and in particular the corporal works of mercy, are going to be the foundation of resistance to wicked institutions. And I think that's what Wolf is doing here as well, that this organization, this church, these hunters, they are attempting to, they are aiding the Martians. They want to bring back the constitutional government against this soulless communist pro-tem government. That's right. And they also want to reclaim their place in the world rather than it being run over by the junkies and the criminals and things like that. We're told they march through the streets at night with the lion. And this is a um, not an act of violence. It is more like a demonstration of their place and their demand to be recognized as people who are placed in the world. And this is a big part of uh, Christian ethics, though it is, I think, perhaps not brought up enough for my taste in in a lot of what we get of Christian discourse and rhetoric in this country, is being a people who are placed. And I think that is something that the hunters are doing. They're demanding a right to live in a place, and they're demanding that that place be peaceful without acting violently towards others around them. Though the lion, I think, does eat a little bit of Charlie's corpse. <laughs> well, I think you, you raise a really good point here, which is that we can, because we can even bring this back to our, our discussion about the different worldviews of drug use and or substance abuse that we had when uh, Colby and, and John Castle were having that conversation, which is to say that, that here we are seeing the hunters offering the people of their neighborhood a place in society, a role, a function, an identity that is not about either politics or labor. That's right. And we see Mona understanding her place, that's Charlie's wife, as caring for Charlie, though he is broken in the way that he is, though he is a hopeless drug addict. She is not, uh, she does not judge him or act outraged or speak to her rights or entitlements. She merely responds with mercy and views mercy as her duty. And I mean, for me, it's a little bit of a shame that we don't get to see Mona in this ritual in a meaningful way. Well, there's one more thing I want to talk about with belief before we move into talking more about about that ritual. And that's that John Castle is disgusted by this belief system he is disgusted by witch doctor stuff, by shamanism, and by all of the, the books that Tia Marie gives him to read. 
and I have two questions about this discussed. Is he disgusted because witch doctor stuff and shamanism are not Christian? Or is he disgusted because these notions are not scientific? Right. So in the text, he's specifically disgusted by the books. And, and we don't know which book disgusts him of the four. But I think his his participation in these rituals in creating the illusion of the ritual at the end of this chapter goes beyond mere duty. We've seen him walk away from his duties as a result of true disgust. I think that's demonstrated earlier in this chapter. I'm sorry, earlier in in chapter five, where he resigns from being oppressed man because he's truly disgusted by that, though I'm not sure that that word is used. So I'm not sure which book disgusts John, but there's something about what he's doing that he doesn't find maybe morally disgusting because if he did, he wouldn't be able to do it. And I think that point is belabored throughout these two chapters. So John is complicit in what he's doing and is okay with it. So I, I want to maybe think that that's the case. Um, and I'd love to hear alternate readings from our listeners or Glenn, if you have uh, if you have an alternate theory, I'd like to hear that as well. But what I do want to talk about is is this notion of graft. And, and this is more where I think what where John is engaged. We see the term graft here in chapter six, where John says that on the simple concept of civilization being an illusion cast upon man by man, that T. Marie has grafted a whole structure of this witch doctor craft. And I think that this is used in a horticultural sense where you take a piece of a healthy branch and you graft it onto something that is unhealthy, or you take the unhealthy and graft it onto that which is healthy, and it restores the disease or whatever is, is killing the plant to back to life. And so that this is a very interesting term to use. This is a very biblical term, very New Testament. Jesus is all about grafting plants. And compare this to how I think the word is used earlier, where John refers to graft as a con, which the pressed is. The pressed men are. Um, they're con artists. And so I think there's more of a comparison going on here with the notions of graft. And I'm really interested in why John is okay doing this work for Tia Marie, helping her cast this illusion upon the people using science when he absolutely rejects any behavior and is unable to perform any behavior he finds morally repugnant. So maybe he's disgusted by some of the theories. I think astrology probably disgusts him as a general science major. I think animism is something he'd probably have a real problem with, but he's directly benefited from the seven works of mercy and seen it in action and been resistant to it. And the fact that he won't even give Charlie a blanket who is who could catch pneumonia in an unheated apartment. So I think there's a reckoning going on here. And maybe some of John's disgust is, is, is not just with the books, but with his own response to reading them of himself, of what it reveals about himself. You make some great points there. One, I want to, I want to point out that we, we see these 
New Testament gardening metaphors at play in How the Whip Came Back as well. And I think that these two pieces uh, go really well together, How the Whip Came Back and Operation Aries so far, dealing with a number of similar themes. So uh, if if listeners haven't done How the Whip Came Back yet, I'd really encourage uh, them to do so. Yeah, I 100% agree. That's a a much better vision, I think, of the world Wolf is trying to build in this story. And there's a lot more urgency in that as well. But I think we can actually answer one of the questions that you raised here as well, which is why does he not like the graft in terms of corruption of the pressed men, but does willingly participate in the graft here of the hunters? And I think it is because the pressed men, and and he tells... And it's, it's, he tells Colby why he can't be a pressed man. It's because he is robbing people. He's robbing them of, of their material goods, but he is also, and more importantly, robbing them of a place. He's robbing them of meaning. He's robbing, he's taking meaning away from their lives as a pressed man. But here, by participating in this religion, by participating in these rituals, he is giving meaning and purpose to people. Right. It's revitalizing. So this is the graft that heals, not the graft that wounds. And I think that that is the key difference for John here. And I think that there's another layer to this too, which is it is clear that John Castle doesn't believe these things that Tia Marie does. Because John Castle himself says he's not clear that Tia Marie believes these things. So I think that Wolf is showing us here that it's not just the belief that matters, but that the practice of this religion, whether you believe it or not, can serve to give shape and meaning to your life in a positive way. Yeah, this is not also not a, an extraordinarily controversial theological idea. I, C.S. Lewis brings this up in, I don't know, Mere Christianity or Surprised by Joy or one of his works about his Christian conversion and the meaning of being a Christian, which is that um, sometimes the practice is more important than the belief. But there's um, also a great book by one of the leaders of the Church of England who writes about the Book of Common Prayer. It's about participating in the tradition of prayer more than the need for performative prayer or spontaneous prayer. And so this idea of rehearsing the traditions of the people you belong to is a longstanding part of theology and of Christian practice. And I think that it's especially part of Catholicism, where throughout history, they have had innumerable numbers of people who don't believe in their religion who are forced to participate in it and have had to come up with this solution, uh, which I think is a very elegant one, which says practice our religion with us and see if it doesn't build community, see if it doesn't do something like what we hope it will do. And I think that that's what's going on here as well. Well, we have unintentionally segued rather nicely into talking about practice. So let's just move into that wholesale. So we get this awesome scene in chapter six in which the president and John Castle witness the hunter's ritual. And and I want to take a closer look at that. I kind of just want to catalog what some of these rituals are, but then also talk about what's going on behind them or, or what the meaning is behind them. So the first thing that we see that's real obvious is that it is that Tia Marie is leading the other practitioners in this ritual. She is functioning as the ritual leader. Uh, some, we might, we might call her a priest, right? In this, in this sense. 
There is music in the form of the beating drum, but there is also a call and response liturgy. And this is taken up largely with, as you said in the recap, listing animals whose spirits then seem to become present in the room. And the pinnacle of this is the king, a very real lion. Right. And the animals go from being less real in in terms of uh, being corporeal to being very real to the point where the president isn't even convinced that the lion, when it initially shows up, is real, that the lion's roar is another trick of stagecraft. And I think this is important in the in reinforcing these ideas of animism and spiritualism, that there is no significant difference between the specter of a thing and the thing itself, because both are impressive in the mind in the same way. Yeah, I think that this lion here is being used by Wolf as as the sort of Lion of Judah that we get in the Old Testament. And he's called the king here. And I think that Wolf is using this part of the ritual to, I don't know, make a little joke really about the way that Christians interpret the understanding of the Lion of Judah in the Old Testament, which is to say that that is prophetically referring to Christ as the king. That's right. And I brought up C.S. Lewis, so I don't want to leave that hanging Maybe Wolf just finished reading the Chronicles of Narnia to his kids. Yeah, I mean, there's a real chance there, right? And obviously, you're referring to Aslan the Lion being a stand-in for for Christ and for for God in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, So there is also another very real animal in this ritual, and that is a bull, which the practitioners kill as as part of the ritual. And, And afterward, they make a ritual of eating the bull's flesh. Yeah, and in fact, John calls it a ritual sacrifice. So I guess the question that is uh, begged by calling something a ritual sacrifice is what is it a sacrifice to and what is it a sacrifice for? And I think those questions are left unanswered in this section, but they're questions I'd like the answer to. I agree. And there were a number of things that I thought about during this part of of the ritual. And and one of them is that this is straight out of the Mithras cult that was popular in the Roman world during the the Principate, uh, and especially in in late antiquity. And uh, as part of their own practices, members of the Mithras cult or Mithras religion cult here in a a non-judgmental sense, a historical sense, uh, members of the Mithras religion would slaughter a bull and then ritually consume it together. Uh, really, in in and this is often held up by uh, scholars of late antique religion as being a, a strong parallel to early Christianity's own practice of sharing ritual meals, which survive today as communion wafers. Right, the ritual meal sharing is a very important part of not only uh, Christianity, but all communities have some sense of meal sharing. But in fact, one thing that defines a community is who it shares its meal with. The word companion comes from bread sharing. <laughs> um, so these are these are both deeply rooted in our sense of civilization, but as you mentioned, in Christianity as well. And the, the Mithras ritual here uh, of the, the, and the, the ritual slaughtering of the bull in the Mithras religion was also done by torchlight, mostly because it's done down in the basements underneath your house. But Wolf's scene here is very concerned with the presence of fire as well. It features heavily in this ritual. 
And one more thing I want to point out here in parallel is that there are also seven degrees of initiation in the Mithras cult. And and while I don't think that's what Wolf had in mind with the seven works, I think we've we've solved that one. Uh, it still might be an interesting parallel. Yeah, one thing we have no sense of in this cult is the progression from initiate to member to whatever whatever hierarchy they have within it. It seems more truly democratic or at least monarchic in, in the sense that there is a ruler and there are members. And that is as far as the distinctions go. Yeah, it's it's egalitarian among all the practitioners. There is only the, but there is the leader of the religion. Right. And in fact, I think we'd be neglectful if we didn't bring up again that they consider themselves a family, which is another bit of language that is uh, that features heavily in early Christianity in the way members of the church are meant to interact with one another as the, the widows, as mothers, the, the, the women as sisters, the males as brothers, the elderly men as fathers. This whole bit of family is a big part of this, and it's also a big part of early Christianity. There's one more thing that this the slaughtering of the bull made me think of, and, and that is a very important scene early on in the Book of the Long Sun when the protagonist, who is a priest, Patera Silk, is struggling to come up with the funds to make a animal sacrifice for the members of his community. And it's so important for him to be able to do this for and with his community. Uh, and this a whole chapter of the book is, is taken up with, with that. And I think we're seeing here Wolf thinking through these things uh, in fiction for the first time. Absolutely. And what's great about that scene in the book of the long sun is it, it's, it's playing on the kind of Levitical rules of sacrifice where the priest gets food from these sacrifices. And we see Silk struggling with hunger throughout the first book of The Long Sun. And part of this, him getting the sacrifice, is so that he doesn't have to eat another damned uh, fried tomato slice. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. One hyper practical example of this for people who are interested in learning more about it is in Francis Ford Coppola's film Apocalypse Now at the very end when you realize that Colonel Kurtz has made a religion out of his status as a white man in this uh, colony in Vietnam and they do this ritual sacrifice at the end of the movie in fairly graphic detail. Well, I think if we're recommending that people go watch Apocalypse Now. Uh, I think we're probably about done. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you think The Seven Works refers to uh, among Tia Marie's books. Next time, we'll continue with our coverage of Operationaries with chapters seven and eight. Until then... We greet you and we say farewell.